Some years ago, I was uh, walking in the streets of Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, before my Florida days, of course, and I met a prophet. I remember, uh, I remember it very vividly. I was walking outside of a little arcade full of small shops, and uh, there was a gentleman who grabbed my attention, and he said, excuse me, you look like an interesting person, whatever that means. Would you like to, I would like to invite you to our uh, spirituality and philosophy discussions that we have over at the coffee shop over here on Thursday nights. And I said, well, I live 45 minutes away, so I, you know, I'm not really from here, so I won't uh, be able to make those. And then he proceeded to tell me that he was a prophet. And uh, I think he said he was a Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu. I think there might have been a few other ones in there. Uh, and then he said he could look out into the horizon and predict things that would happen in the future. At this point, I politely excused myself from the conversation and headed to the local pub for a pint and a sandwich. <clears throat> Friends, if you ever meet someone who says, I'm a mystic, or I'm enlightened, or I'm a prophet, you should probably be a little bit skeptical. But it leaves us with the question, what is a prophet and what is it mean to prophesy or to be a prophetic witness, something we Episcopalians don't talk about very often. And we know there's a tradition of prophets in the Old Testament. And we also hear just two weeks ago from our reading in St. Paul in the New Testament that prophecy is a gift within the church. So what do we make of this idea of a prophet and of the prophetic tradition It all really begins with Moses, who is the prophet's prophet. And what makes a prophet is that they are called by God to stand in his presence and to receive a message from him and then to go out and to make his truth known to other people who are all often uh, living under an illusion, to speak truth in a culture of lies. And uh, we hear today from one prophet, Jeremiah, we hear about his calling And we learn something about the calling of prophets is that uh, prophets in and of themselves are not really capable of their call. Jeremiah says, Lord, I'm only a youth. And uh, what that uh, biblical language implies is that he still lived under his uh, parents' support and depended on his parents, just a teenager. And God says to Jeremiah, I will be with you and I will give you words over nations and peoples that will pluck up and overthrow and destroy and build and plant and I will be with you. And then on through the Old Testament, we have this whole line of prophets whose ministry is really a threefold ministry and prophets really do uh, three big things. And the first is that they name the sin that is happening amongst God's people. Uh, whether it be idolatry or worshiping foreign gods, turning their backs on the God who loves them and who they gave themselves to in a covenant promise. Uh, and then what they do is they say, here's the deal. If this doesn't come to an end, here, here's the judgment that's going to happen. This is going to be the result of continuing to turn your back on the Lord your God who loves you. And the third thing that prophets do is they uh, they speak messages of hope and forgiveness and restoration for those who will turn their Hearts back to the Lord. And it is within this, what we could call prophetic tradition, that Jesus sees himself in continuity. He sees himself in continuity, his own ministry in continuity with the prophets of the Old Testament. So we're going to look at what Jesus says to the crowd of the synagogue today in Luke 4. If you want to follow along in your bulletin, that's the passage that we're going to be in for the next few moments. 
says this, that Jesus had read from the prophet Isaiah, and he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Words that were written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that someone would come to release God's people, to set captives free, to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of God's favor. And Jesus says, this is fulfilled in your midst. And the response of the people, this is the initial response, and we're going to see that their response changes, their attitude towards him changes. It says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. But you see, their amazement is really not a pure kind of amazement. There are selfish motives behind it. And this comes out as we see what Jesus, how Jesus responds to them. They say, is not this Joseph's son? He's just the carpenter guy, the, the kid, the carpenter kid from Nazareth. And Jesus responds to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. Older versions of the Bible say this much more beautifully. You've heard it before. Physician, heal thyself. Well, what does that mean? First of all, that is a proverb that was well known in the ancient world that was actually said sometimes to physicians who uh, were out and about carrying out their 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 medical uh, their medical vocation to people all throughout the land, and their own people would say to them, "Come to the people of your own land if you're so good. Physician, heal thyself. Do your work among your own people." And Jesus says, you will say that to me. And he, and he tells us a little bit more about what he means by that because he goes on and he says, you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. They want Jesus to be the wonder worker that they've heard he is and they want him to do it for them. They want him to be for his own people, the Israelites. And Jesus responds In a very strange way, this seems to come out of the blue. And he says, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. And then Jesus goes into Bible story mode, something I do often at night before my children's bedtime. He goes into Bible story mode, and it seems like it just comes out of the blue. And he begins to remind them of some story of some Old Testament prophets. First, he tells them about Elijah. He says, the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a famine over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Why does he tell this story? Why this story out of all the stories he could have told? Where is this coming from? You see, this Israelite crowd is a crowd of people who had forgotten their God-given mission to reach outsiders in the world, the people who were not a part of God's family, the people who were not a part of his chosen nation, and their mission was actually to reach them. And Jesus reminds them that God had been doing this work even in the days of old through his prophets, because you know who the widow in Sidon is? She's a woman in a patriarchal society. She's a widow, and worse, she's a Gentile. She's an outsider. She's a non-Jew. She is not one of God's people. And so she's a marginal person. She's an outsider in every way that you possibly could be. And Jesus holds this story up in front of their faces and says, remember, God's work has always been to reach those on the outskirts of his people, on the margins of society, the people who have no one, and to bring them, incorporate them into his family. In a way, he's, he's poking his finger in their eye and saying, You have failed your mission to do this. 
And to add insult to injury, he reminds them of another story. He says, and remember that there were a lot of lepers in Israel who, who Elisha could have been sent to, but God sent him to a Gentile leper, Naaman, the Syrian, an enemy of Israel. And through Elisha, God healed Naaman of his leprosy. Now, this is like, imagine someone coming into your job when you've, uh, you, you've, you've been at this job for a long time and your boss comes in one day and just says, you are doing a horrible job. You, in fact, you are failing in every way that you could possibly fail. It was a huge, huge insult to them. And this is why their attitude suddenly shifts towards him. Remember at the beginning of the passage, it says everyone spoke well of him and there were many gracious words. And then suddenly their attitudes shifts. And it says this in response. They they heard this. All in the synagogue were filled with rage. See, a prophet's word is never popular. Words of truth to people who are living lies are not received. They often fall on deaf ears. And so the people become very angry because they don't like Jesus telling them that they have failed in their mission to reach the rest of the world that they have become insular as God's people. And so they go from being amused by him to being murderous towards him. And he eludes them. You see, Jesus, all through the Gospels, is reminding his people that all along God's plan was to reach outsiders. And Jesus takes up the role of a prophet as a prophetic witness in the midst of his people to call them to account for living a lie, thinking that you're God's people just based on your ethnicity. This is why John the Baptist says, God could raise up stones to be his people, to be his children. And Jesus is, he's rebuking them. He's calling them to account for their failed mission because Jesus is about reaching people. For when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says that very famous line that we all know, for God so loved the world. The, the, the Jews were, the Israelites were sitting there waiting for him to say, for God so loved the Jews. But Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe on him, whoever, would not perish, but have eternal life. And so there's a question now, is Jesus the last in a line of prophets? Remember we said just a couple weeks ago, we heard that there are apparently gifts of prophecy in the church. Gifts uh, among the church of Jesus Christ where someone can speak truth, sometimes about things that might happen in the future to get a hold of God's people in their present situation and to reorient them towards God and towards his purposes. But rather than focus on the individual spiritual gift of prophecy, I'd like to suggest that the church of Jesus Christ, all of us, are actually given a vocation to be a prophetic witness in our own world. The church, friends, is a prophet. The church is a prophet. Now, how do we do that in our world? How how does the church proclaim the message of the good news that God loved sinners so much that he sent his son to die for them, to incorporate them into his family? The people, even the people that you and I would be uncomfortable with if they came into our church and sat down beside us. Because we don't like how they smell or we don't like purple mohawks or nose rings. Those are the people that God loves. 
and sent his son to die for. So how does the church, this is the question I want to ask is, uh, uh, for the rest of our time, how does the church carry out its vocation as a prophetic witness in the world? Two big things that are practical for us. And the first is this, gentleness. Gentleness may be one of the most forgotten fruit of the Spirit that St. Paul lists there in Galatians 5. We've all heard, we had this song when I was a kid. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. We're using the King James Version. Um, gentleness is, is in that list. And we forget that that's actually a work of the Holy Spirit to produce gentleness in one of God's children. And I'm sure that it won't take much to convince you that in our world today, gentleness is not a common characteristic. Nobody's gentle. Uh, you're gentle until you get on I-4 on Friday at 4 o'clock. <laughs> Nobody is gentle. So what does it look like to show gentleness as a prophetic witness? See, because of the fact that it is so uncommon, when, when followers of Jesus are gentle in the way that they present their message, it'll be noticeable. And it could have an outcome that you would never expect. St. Paul, who penned most of the New Testament, he had this young protege named Timothy. And uh, Timothy was kind of just this, Paul had ordained him, laid hands on him to be a leader in the church. And Timothy was this kind of timid guy who was sort of shy and he had stomach problems. Uh, I can relate to him and his, his health issues, but this, I digress. But Paul was writing letters to Timothy to say, here's how you deal with such and such issues as a leader in the church. And in his second letter to Timothy, he says this. He's telling Timothy how to deal with people who are opposing the truth of the gospel. And he says, Timothy, if someone opposes the truth of the gospel, get out your boxing gloves. No, it doesn't say that. Okay. Yeah, you all thought I missed that part. He says this, Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, patient Correcting opponents with gentleness. Correcting opponents with gentleness. Then he says this, and I find this astounding, this next part. We can't stop there because he wants to tell Timothy what the outcome could be. God may perhaps grant your opponent, people who are opposed to the gospel, who will not believe it. God may perhaps grant your opponent to turn around, to repent and come to know the truth that they may escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. (laughs) This is amazing. Paul is saying, he's telling Timothy that through his gentleness towards enemies, opponents, people might be converted to Jesus. That the power of the devil that holds people captive, that keeps them blind from realizing the truth of the gospel, can be broken through a gentle presentation of the gospel. Imagine that. If we act like Jesus did towards his enemies, we just might draw people to him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do as they spat upon him and mocked him. Gentle until the end. Friends, this is easier said than done. This is easier said than done. There's a, there's a Christian ethicist. He taught at Duke for a long time that I really like. His name's Stanley Hauerwas. And he once said this. Until we learn to see our enemies as wounded people who are loved by God, gentleness is not possible. See, if we see our enemies, the people who, who, who think and believe and dress and act and vote differently than we do, if we see them as God's enemies, we will never present the gospel to them with gentleness. 
But if gentleness is a defining characteristic in how we relate to others, especially our enemies, our witness to a gentle Lord will be nothing short of prophetic. Because gentleness is a prophetic witness in a world torn apart by strife and anger. The second thing is this, truthfulness. And this is so important, friends, because it's assumed by so many people that to be gentle or kind, you cannot expect others to accept what you believe to be true for themselves. That is, if you insist your beliefs are exclusively or absolutely true, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you believe that, you're intolerant and closed-minded because our culture says everyone should be able to believe what they want to believe so long as they believe it's true. But think about how problematic this is. The logic of this gets you into some trouble because here's what the consequence is. If something is true just because someone strongly believes it to be true, then what Hitler believed about Jews was true. And what the Ku Klux Klan believes about non-white races is true. But see, nobody wants to admit that because we all know it's wrong. You see, we know deep in here that, that some beliefs, no matter how strongly they are held, are simply untrue. They are, they're out of sync with, with the moral reality of God that pervades our atmosphere and that we feel pressing upon us and calling us to truth and beauty and goodness. And that means that some beliefs are more true than others and that some beliefs are simply false. See, fundamental to Christianity, fundamental to Christianity is the claim, claim that Jesus is the truth. Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate who was going to send him to his death and he's having this back and forth with them and Jesus is actually being very gentle uh, with the man who's going to send him to his execution. And Jesus tells Pontius Pilate, all who are on the side of truth, listen to me. And Pilate, in, in, in a very 21st century modern Western way, says this, what is truth? What is truth? And he sends Jesus to his death. See, I believe that Christianity's truth is rejected by so many people, not because they've looked deeply into it and explored it and found it to be untrue, but because of the way it is so often presented. Namely, without gentleness, with anger, with, 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 with resentment, with harsh words, with my lifestyle that does not line up with what I say I believe. Nothing could do more damage to the gospel. You see, but imagine how the truth of the scriptures and the truth of Christianity might be, might win some people over if it were presented winsomely and gently. Friends, there are some things we believe. Frederick, Frederick Beekner says, if you don't wake up at least a few times a week and think this stuff is crazy that I'm living, then your faith isn't genuine. There are some things that we are called to believe that are so at odds and despised by the world. And that should not surprise us. That should not surprise us. You see, what scripture says about things like sexual morality and marriage, about, about Jesus being the only hope of our reconciliation with God, about, about the sacredness and fragility of life in the womb. These things are sometimes at odds with the most prevalent beliefs in our culture. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Remember in the synagogue? They were filled with rage. People who are living under deception are enraged at the truth. 
Now, when Jesus says that, as he says, don't worry about the world hating you because they hated me first, he's not condoning that we go out and be jerks who are smug. He's saying that anybody who lives as a prophetic witness to his truth, to the truth of God, should expect pushback from a world that hates God and wants to suppress the truth of reality. He says we should expect pushback against that. It should not surprise us. And yet, friends, if we believe that what Jesus says about the truth, that it will set people free, then we must be committed to it and we must share it with gentleness and respect. Now, most importantly, this is so much more important than anything that I, that I have set up to this point, because you see, we will never do any of this or believe any of this to actually really be true if the gospel that, that Jesus Christ suffered on a cross for our sins becomes a, a lived reality for us. If it doesn't become a lived reality for us, you see, there's, um, there's, there's two different ways of experiencing spiritual realities, really. Um, one is a cognitive experience, which is where you say, I understand this in my mind and I, I believe it, and that might lead you to become a churchgoer and maybe get baptized and begin to learn how to pray and things like that, and that's good. But there's another and deeper element of how we experience spiritual realities, and I would call that the faith experience, where we begin to truly trust God, and we begin to allow him to do the work that he wants to do in our lives. Job had this experience at the very end of his book when God appears to Job out of this whirlwind, and Job has this this encounter with the living God and begins to realize how great and infinitely wise God is. Job says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you. Theologian J.I. Packer calls this being melted by spiritual realities. Melted by spiritual realities. Would that we be melted by the spiritual reality of the gospel. It's like this. You remember, I don't know if you had these when you were a kid. Um, when I was a kid, we had these little like pills. They were like these little toys you could buy at the store. Little came in little packages of like four or five. And they were like these little sponge pills. They had a capsule on the outside of them. And you, you took them into the sink. You got up on your little kid's stool and you got in the sink and you turned the water on. And when you poured water over them, the capsule kind of melted and the sponge kind of came out into like a fully formed little, you know, like an elephant or a tree or uh, a, a zebra or something. See, that's like what happens when the truth of the gospel becomes a reality for us in the depths of our heart is that some of us go along in life kind of just packaged in that pill as Christians. We're like little pill Christians. And when the gospel becomes a spiritual reality that melts us, we unfold into a fully formed creature of God. We come alive and we are set free. So many of us walk around with shame and guilt from things we've done in the past and, and, and suffer maybe even presently from addictions and the power of the gospel when it becomes a reality for us can set us free. Jesus said the truth will set you free. Now, just finally, uh, we had a revival on Friday night and uh, we've uh, we uh, had our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, who, of course, is well known now since the royal wedding sermon, uh, come and preach to us. And I love uh, Michael Curry because he's funny and he's winsome and he's energetic. I mean, the guy doesn't slow down. He talked about looking at the mirror in the morning and trying to wipe out his eyes and going, oh, Denzel Washington. And you know, he's just he's so funny and, and winsome. And I think he does a great job 
of, of, of energizing people to exercise Jesus's example of love. Right? He talks about loving across racial difference. He loves to talk about Democrats loving Republicans and Republicans loving Democrats. And he loves to talk about, uh, loving the people who are on the outskirts of society. And I love that. And we should, we should absolutely hurrah and carry out that message. But, but I wish our presiding bishop would talk more about the cross. You see, because as uh, one author said, and someone just sent this to me as we were talking about this, one, uh, he, he found this, and this one author says this, it sums it up so well. We are not saved by the love we exercise, but by the love we trust. That is the love of God for sinners demonstrated on the cross where Jesus absorbed the condemnation that we deserved. That's the gospel. Exercising love is not the gospel. It's a result of the gospel. And we must never forget that the cross is at the center of our faith. An old Anglican uh, minister named Dick Lucas says this, and I've said it before in sermons, and I'll say it probably a thousand times again because I think it's so helpful. And he says this, The gospel shows me I am far more sinful and wicked than I had ever imagined, and yet far more loved and forgiven than I could ever hope for. If we leave one of those out, we miss the fullness of the gospel. And, and, and revivals happened throughout history when a people took note of both of those things. They became increasingly aware of their own sinfulness and separation from God and aware of God's holiness and majesty and at the same time simultaneously of his love for them. Remember 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. When the Holy Spirit makes that real to us, we will not only know with confidence that we are held in the gentle hands of a loving God, we will also desire to be a prophetic witness in the world to that truth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we stand before you, forgiven, redeemed, released from the things that held us captive because of what you have done on the cross for us. And we ask you to bring that to the forefront of our lives every day that we wake up, that we would say, this stuff is crazy. How can I live it? Come, Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that as we uh, all of us walk out of these doors, uh, these red doors today, that we will have been nourished by your word and by your presence in the sacrament and by the worship so that we desire, Lord, to, to make others set free by the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.